newcomers' brunches at our house yesterday. So we had a full house, and we had a, a great time with those who were able to come. And we have actually even more that are registered for the one a week from this Saturday. But there's, there's room for still more. If, you guys, uh, are, if you're a newcomer, if, which means you've never been to one of the brunches at our house, and you can make it one week from Saturday, the 31st at 10 a.m., then go to the uh, information center in the lobby before you leave. Let them know you want to register for the brunch on the 31st. They'll give you a, a card that shows our address and our phone number and reminds you of the time and date on there. So that'll be a week from Saturday. And then longer range... Uh, this will be in the bulletin starting in the next week or two, and I'll be announcing it regularly, but we uh, always announce several weeks out our next baptism, and the next one is going to be on July the 27th, so a couple months away for our next baptism, but I want to get it out there for any of you that have never been baptized, uh, for you to see me about what the qualifications are for baptism. If you're not sure if you've been baptized, <laughs> you say, how can you not be sure if you've been baptized? You, you know you've been baptized, you just don't know if it counts. So, so if you don't know if your baptism counts, you can see me about that as well, and I can let you know what baptism is and, as I say, who's qualified for it and all that. But it is a very important matter that uh, Christ requires for all of his followers, and so if you want to be a follower of Christ, then it's something you're to, to do and very significant. So see me about that. July the 27th is our next one. Now I've got a couple of announcements that were just written on notes and put up here. I'll do my best with them. One is... The Friends, that's our seniors group, uh, is having a a tea party this coming Saturday from 1 to 3 at the Biggs House. So it's not here. We've got the open house, graduation open house going on here. But at the Biggs home, uh, there's going to be a tea tea party, it says. Is that in reference to what I said during the uh, the first hour? (laughs) But nevertheless, for the seniors group, they're going to be having a party that will be accompanied by tea. I think that's uh, the idea. This coming Saturday, 1 to 3 at the Bigs. You can pick up an invitation for that, it says, at the uh, desk, the information center in the uh, lobby, and uh, register for that at that desk today, or you can call the, uh, the Bigs with the phone number that is on the invitation so they ha- know how much food to have. And then another announcement is, if we have any uh, 19 and up, uh, 19 through about mid-20s, 25, 26 in here, Uh, There is a class for you. The Crossroads group is meeting for the next six weeks, as they do periodically for their own class. So if you fit into that uh, category, then you're welcome to go to that class if you'd like. It's right out that door, and it's the uh, second door on your right in the hallway if you turn left, okay? All right, what are we going to be looking at today and over the next few weeks in this hour? Those of you that have been able to be with us the last few weeks know that we've been talking about uh, philosophy of church. Philosophy of church ministry. It sounds extremely boring, and if you've been here, perhaps it it was very boring, but uh, it's very important, boring or not. And over the last three weeks, we've been talking about that. And uh, let me break that down again, philosophy of church. Philosophy means uh, love of wisdom. And uh, so when we talk about philosophy of church, we're talking about how we can apply wisdom to church life to the way church is done, to the way church is structured. And that begins, as we did three weeks ago, with an understanding of what is meant by church in the New Testament. And so I've defined church as Scripture does. The word that's translated church in your New Testament is ekklesia. Uh, Ek means out, kaleo means call, and ekklesia means 
called out ones. The church is a group of called out people, people who have been called out of the world and to, and to Christ. So as a result of that, those who are part of the church, whether right now we're just talking about the body of Christ, those who are saved, those who have a relationship with him, as a result of having been called out, well, that suggests that there are some who are still out, right? So you've got, scripturally, two groups of people always, believer and unbeliever. Those who are in the light and those who are in darkness. Those who follow the Lord and those who do not. In fact, the Bible is more direct about that. You only, have, you only have ultimately two people you follow. You either follow God or you follow the adversary. You follow Satan. And uh, even if you don't consciously do so, uh, unconsciously you're doing so. So it is extremely important, this distinction that the Bible makes between those that are in and those that are out. And those that are part of the church have been called out and to God. So then as you think about wisdom as it relates to how you do church, it's going to have to be based on that rock-solid fact that the church is comprised of people that have been called out of the world and to God. And that then, in turn, is going to shape how you go about church life because the Bible then speaks often of God's people as it uses terms like saints. And the word for saint and those who are sanctified and holiness, those are all related to the same Greek term, hagios, which means to be set apart. So people called out of the world into God, a people who are set apart, who are in the process of being gradually more and more set apart from the world and to God, people who are becoming more and more holy in their thinking and in their words and in their conduct and in their values, this, this is the people that comprise the church. So as you think about wisdom then, as it relates to how you do church, it's going to have to take into consideration that extremely foundationally important fact, that that's what the church is. So I have tried to make the case that the way many of our churches are going about church life does not do justice to that truth. That instead of gathering a congregation of people that are called out of the world into God, who have evidenced the fact that they have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They are people who have been baptized and they know that they are in and no longer out. Instead of structuring the church in that way, and in particular our times of worship for those people, instead of structuring it for those people that way, because it's only those people who can do worship, right? Only those people who have been called out of the world and to God can worship. So therefore, church life, and especially worship, needs to be centered around and designed for those people. But in our churches, that's not what we're doing. We're gathering instead of a congregation of those people, we're gathering a crowd of everybody. And everybody who likes the cool thing we're doing. And the cooler you do the thing and the cooler your guy is who does the talk, that's, by the way, what it's called. Do you all know that? Sermons, sermons are gone, baby. It's the talk. And so a guy gets up and does the talk. And if he's a cool guy and he dresses cool and you know, you, you know what I'm talking about, then, and your band is cool and you just, it is a cool place to be, then it's the place, a place people want to be. So you get a lot of people who want to be here, be there because it's cool, but there is little emphasis upon, are you part of the church? 
So much so that then the stuff that is specifically designed for church people, things like the Lord's table and communion, have to be moved off to another time. Or things like, uh, things like worship. I mean, to be fair, what many that do what are called seeker services, that's what they're called, services designed for seekers, done on Sunday morning, and it's become a replacement for worship. So you get the crowd rather than the congregation and all of that. And to be fair, what they've done is they've recognized that problem. Many of them have. And so what they've said is our midweek program, this is what Willow Creek in Chicago, the founder or the, the designer of the Seeker Services does. They say what we do on Sunday morning is not a worship service. It's the Seeker Service. And we have our worship service midweek on Wednesdays. Well, let's see how well that thing's working out. So if you get 15,000 people on Sunday, which they do, and you get 1,500 people on Wednesday, what's gone wrong with this thing? Which is exactly what happens. So my case has been that we need to think long and hard about, about church, okay? And that then raises the question, though, if the church is this called-out group, set apart, saints, God's holy people, then how can we ever accomplish the mission that God has given to us, which is to make disciples of all nations? How am I going to relate to people who are out if there's this regular emphasis on who's in? And so last week, we turned our attention to that. And I made the suggestion that there are at least three major areas of truth that allow us to relate to those who are as yet outside the body of Christ. And I say as yet because I'm optimistic and I want to see them brought into the body of Christ. But how do we relate to them? Well, we relate to them on the basis of the image of God in man. They, like we, are made in the image of God and they still have the image of God and they were made to know God. So I can relate to them on that basis. The Bible teaches they were made for God and made to know God and though Romans 1, they suppress that truth by sin, they still know the voice of their Creator. And so they're made to know God. So I have that point of contact. I also have common grace I talked about last week. That God allows sinful people, and, and including sinful people who are still outside the body of Christ, in His common grace to still care about things that He cares about. Because He started them and He gave them and they still have the vestiges of that in their humanity. And so in common grace, even unbelievers might stay married. And if they have trouble in their marriage, they might care about it. Now, that's an institution that God gave for His purposes. And an unbeliever may not know that. He may not know why, who gave marriage, where it came from, what it's for. He just knows he's in it, he cares about it, and he'd like to see it fixed. Parenting. He's got trouble with his kids. And he loves his kids and he wants to raise his kids. Well, children are a heritage from the Lord. God is the one who said, be fruitful and multiply, just like marriage. The gift of children is for God's purposes. He doesn't know that. He just knows he loves them and he wants to keep them out of jail and off drugs and see them go in a proper direction. And in God's common grace, even the unbeliever cares about a number of the same things we care about. So we can relate to the unbeliever based upon this long list of common grace kinds of, of issues. And then we can also relate to the unbeliever by 
showing the mercy and the grace of God in their times of struggle. That is, being engaged in what we call mercy ministries. Helping people in a plethora of, of ways. And in the name of Jesus, giving a cold cup of water to one who is, is thirsty. So lots of ways for us to, to do that. We talked about those last week. Now for the next few weeks, I'd like to refine that. And talk about not the church's overall task then, in yes, being God's holy people, yes, being those who are called out of the world and maintaining that distinct identity in the way we go about what we're doing, but now talk about our individual and personal responsibility, each of us, to be lights and salt in the uh, spheres of influence that God has placed us. Or to put it another way, another way that we the church are going to relate to those who are outside of the church is when you go to work and you go to your neighborhood and you go to your family and you make the contacts that God has in his providence given you and you show Christ in the way you behave and you speak Christ, the gospel to them. That's called personal evangelism. And I'd like to today begin a discussion about that. So we as a church have tried to structure ourselves and are looking to continually structure ourselves to take advantage of those, the image of God, common grace, mercy ministries. But each of us individually needs to, when we leave each Lord's Day and we go into our responsibilities, be aware of the fact that God has placed people around me that he wants me to attempt to reach with the gospel. And that's another key, very key way that then the church relates to the world you got a bunch of people going out there seeking to be used as ambassadors for Jesus. So how do we do that? And I would like to talk a bit then about how we do that. So today, the first thing you and I need to do as we engage in personal evangelism is this. Know your audience. Know the person you're talking to. And when I say no, I don't mean necessarily spend a lot of time getting to know them, although that's very good, establish a relationship, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about try to get to know the particular problem that they have with the gospel and then address it, address that particular problem. So let me explain. Have you ever noticed that in Jesus' ministry, he would have all these encounters with people, but he didn't have a one-size-fits-all approach to how how he dealt with people? Have you ever noticed that? I mean, why did he deal with one person one way and another person a different way? And my understanding of that is it's because Jesus knew his audience. He knew the particular point that this person had either a misunderstanding or rebellion against the gospel, and he addressed it. So, for example, when he was dealing with a religious type, somebody who considered himself to be right with God because he did all the right stuff, Jesus zeroed in on that. And he broke down that misunderstanding in very direct ways. We're going to see it in a bit. But when he dealt with someone who was steeped in sin, they had no illusions about the fact that they were righteous before God. They knew they were not righteous before God. Then he addressed that. He addressed that sin. So to the religious person, he addressed the sin of their self-righteousness. And to the non-religious person, he addressed their sin of licentiousness, living for for themselves. But in both cases, they're a deficiency of the gospel. They both fall short of the good news of Jesus. And you see a a number of examples of that uh, in, in Scripture. So let's start with one. 
in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. Matthew 19 and verse 16. And here's an encounter with what is sometimes called the rich young ruler. If you've got an NIV, the subtitle there before verse 16 says the rich young man. But so-called because this guy had many possessions, as we'll see. So he was materially rich. But it's an evangelistic encounter. Jesus is, we're going to see his dialogue with this guy, but Jesus addresses him in a way that speaks to the particular deficiency this guy has. He knows his audience. So verse 16, Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Man, that is loaded. That one question. Notice, what good thing? So what are the assumptions that go into that one question? What good thing? One assumption is, is I can do a good thing. And so Jesus hears a guy ask a question like that. What good thing can I do? And he's going to point out shortly, (laughs) there ain't no good thing because you ain't good. But that's the assumption. What good thing? But then it goes on, what good thing can I do? It's not, how can I be good? It's how can I do good? The assumption is that heaven is about people who do good. This guy's a moralist. If I live a moral life, and I keep the right rules, well, then the reward for that is, is heaven, eternal life. So what good thing? The assumption is, I'm good enough to do it. Just tell me what the good thing is. And the other assumption is that it's stuff we do, not the standing we have, not who we are. And the result of that is, I get eternal life. The prize is heaven. The prize is eternal life. Notice, the prize is not God himself. What I want to get is the pot of gold. I want the streets of gold. I can take or leave God. So all in one question, teacher, what good thing can I do to obtain, inherit, get eternal life? And then Jesus says in verse 17, well, why do you ask me about what's good? So Jesus is immediately honing in on that first thing. You are making some assumptions about goodness. So I'm going to address your assumption, your false assumption about what is good, more important, who is good. So why are you asking me about what is good? And then he says in verse 17, there is only one who is good. In one statement, (laughs) Jesus has said to this guy who thinks he's good, but we both know there's only one who is good, and notice that's in capitals. That is, we 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 both know there's only, only God who is good. And if you're not God, and you're not, then it also means you're not good. 
which in turn blows the assumption of your very question. What good thing can I do? There is no good thing you can do because you're not good. There's only one who is good, namely God. Now, Jesus is God. That's a different matter, but we know you're not, and therefore there is no good thing that you can do. But he moves on. He doesn't just leave it there. He wants to hone in on this guy's approach toward doing. Well, I'm good, and Jesus is saying, no, you're not. Well, what good thing do I do? It's a matter of my work. And Jesus now is going to point out, let's test that. Let's test out how good you are at the work. So just to prove to you, you're really not good and you can't do, he says to him in verse 17, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Now, theoretically, it is absolutely the case. If someone perfectly keeps God's law, then that person has a relationship with God. They were made by God to have a relationship with Him. And if they are able to keep all of the commandments, then that person has never lost a relationship with God, theoretically. But the reason I say theoretically is there is no such person. God gave the law, and guess how many people kept it? One, Jesus. Jesus kept it. So, but just to make sure you get that, young man, if you want to have life, then life is through keeping the commandments. And then he says, now we're, you know, getting somewhere, this guy's thinking. Verse 18, which ones? And then Jesus says, uh, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, Love your neighbor as yourself. Ah. And I love that Jesus starts with, well, don't murder. And, and the guy's like, all right, this is good. My rap sheet has no murders on it. And he goes through the stealing. The guy's rich. He probably hasn't stolen. False testimony. Notice how they get from completely unlikely that he's done these to more likely that he has. False testimony, honor your father and your mother. Were you, always, were you always obedient and honoring to your father and your mother? But then love your neighbor as yourself. Yikes, the guy's got a lot of dough. Loving your neighbor as yourself, doing unto others as you would have them to do unto you. What would that look like for a wealthy person like you, I wonder? But this guy is so deluded in his self-righteousness that he still believes he's done all of this. And so he says in verse 20, all these I have kept, good so far, what do I lack? Well, he's dull of understanding, and now Jesus is going to make it very clear to him, no, you have not kept all of those. If you want to be perfect, verse 21, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and then come and follow me. Do you see what Jesus did? He pointed right at this guy's self-righteousness. You're not good. Right at his assumption that I can do something to get eternal life. No, you can't. And let's just look at the things you're familiar with, the, the commandments. Have you done that? And he lists a few, and the guy says, oh, yeah, I've got that. And the last one Jesus listed was love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus, Jesus proceeds to show him, you have not loved your neighbor as yourself. Because I am telling you to use what 
you have that has been given to you by God and to use that for these neighbors who need it. And then let's talk. And here's what the Bible says. Verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. So, you know your audience. Know who you're talking to. Is this a person who is steeped in self-righteousness? And so many people are steeped in self-righteousness, aren't they? I'm good to go because I'm a good person. And the Bible teaches there is no one good but God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, there is no one who does good, not even one. There is no one righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God, no, not one. So what is the family member? What is this neighbor? What is this coworker that I would love to see come to Jesus and I would like to be used as an instrument in Jesus' hands? What misunderstanding or rebellion does this person have against the gospel? And very often it is, I'm good to go because I'm good. And so they need to be, they need to be shown that the gospel is something other than that. And so I would like to, and that's what Jesus does with, with this man. Now, before we move on, notice how successful Jesus was in this encounter. The guy went away. Jesus uh, believed and practiced the sovereignty of God. He is God. But he believed in the control of God in the evangelistic encounter. Our job is to give the message straight and for God to deal with the results. You can't make anybody come to Jesus. Jesus didn't make this guy come to him. He told the guy the truth, and the guy went away. And you know what many of our evangelistic techniques would say? Well, man, you got to do something different. you got to try a different technique. That one clearly is not working. You're running people off. Here's Jesus given an ideal evangelistic encounter. How many times do you get somebody coming up and saying, what do I have to do to be saved? So he's teed it up there, Jesus, for you. Just hit the ball by using the right technique. But Jesus' technique is this, tell the truth and depend on the Spirit to move on the heart of that person so that the truth takes root. And that's God's work as to whether or not that that truth takes root. So I'm not suggesting to you, you do what we're going to talk about in the next few weeks, and then, it, and then it works. You do it, and you're faithful. And God is pleased to use that in the life of people, but he's the one who ultimately makes it work. So this guy went away sorrowful. As far as we know, this guy never came to Christ. But this is what Jesus told him. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit before we look at some other encounters, if we have time to do that today. You've got all these people who are self-righteous and, and, and need the gospel of our righteousness coming in Christ. So what that means, friends, is we have to have a, an absolutely ironclad understanding of the righteousness that comes from God that is not from ourselves. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of the good news. That my right standing for, before God is not about how good I am. It's about how good Jesus is. That Jesus is absolutely perfect, and in the gospel, his perfection is given to somebody who's wicked, me. 
That's the good news. Now, where do you see that? Look at Romans chapter 4. A few weeks ago, we looked at the theme of the book of Romans, so I'm not going to take time to rehearse that uh, much. But the 16 chapters that comprise the letter to the Romans is all about the gospel. And I know this uh, because the theme verses are in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for everyone who believes. For the reason it's the power of God for everyone who believes, verse 17, is because in it, in the gospel, a righteousness that comes from God is made known, which comes by faith, by believing, from beginning to end, from first to last. So those are the theme verses of the 16 chapters of of Romans. It's about the gospel, and here's what the gospel is. In the gospel, the good news is there's a righteousness that comes from outside of you, that comes from God. And that's really good news because you don't have any. And beginning in the very next verse, Romans 1 and verse 18, Paul who wrote that begins to show you don't have any. The wrath of God is being made known against the ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in their sinfulness and their ungodliness. Because what may be known about God has been made plain to them, and many of you have read that before. It goes on to show in chapters 2 and 3 that Jews and Gentiles alike are sold under sin. And then when you come to chapter 3, what shall we say, verse 9, about this? And then it gives this catalog from verses 10 through 18 of Romans chapter 3 of just how bad everybody is, Jew and Gentile. No one good, no one righteous, no one who seeks God. But then when you come to verse 21 of Romans chapter 3, it now is a a bookend to Romans 1.17. Romans 1.17 said, In the gospel, a righteousness from God is made known. And then in chapter 3 and verse 21, but now a righteousness from God has been made known. And here it is. It comes through believing in Jesus Christ. He then is our righteousness. He is the one who has taken the penalty for our sin. He is the one who is the, the word used there in Romans 3 is a a propitiation for our sins. That is, satisfying the righteous anger of God by his blood on the cross against sin. Jesus is the one who did that. And that all comes from outside of you. It's Jesus. So Jesus died to pay the penalty and satisfy the wrath of God. And he lived a perfect life, a perfectly righteous life. And both of those things are given to you when you come to him by believing. And that brings us to Romans 4. Verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? Well, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it, that faith, that believing, was credited to him as righteousness. Now, why Abraham? Well, because Abraham is the father of the Jewish race. 
And so if you're going to make the case that the good news is a righteousness from outside of yourself, then you're going to have to deal with Abraham somehow, Paul. Because Abraham was the guy who got it done. Remember, Abraham was given the test of Isaac and offer your son and he, and he obeyed. So if anybody ever deserved eternal life, it's this guy. Because he did, he obeyed what God said to do. And so here's Paul saying, well, let's talk about Abraham. What really happened with Abraham? And in fact, before Abraham ever obeyed God by being willing to offer Isaac in sacrifice, Genesis 15 and verse 6 says what's quoted here in Romans 4 and verse 3. Abraham believed God, and it that belief was credited to him as righteousness. So it was not for Abraham or for anybody else has it ever been a matter of this person keeping the rules and therefore getting the prize. It was with Abraham as it must be with everyone else. They believe in someone outside of themselves who has done what they could not do, namely the Lord Jesus. Abraham believed and it it was credited as righteousness. Now he goes on to say, how does that apply to us? Verse 4. When a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. Let me just stop there. Why does, why does that matter? Why does verse 4 matter? <laughs> Remember this theme in the Scripture over and over again, that God cares about getting the credit? So God would not allow the system to involve your good stuff. Because if it involves your good works, then obtaining something, God owes you. That's an obligation, and God ain't going to owe anybody. God designs everything he does, and certainly his message of salvation, so that he's the one who gets the credit and the glory. That's why verse 4 matters. It can't be by works, because if it were by works, works are not credited as a gift, but rather as an obligation. But verse 5, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who, and look at these next three words, justifies the wicked. Now, man, that verse blows religion away. Because for most people, religion is this. Religion is the stuff you do in order for you to be right before God. And Paul says here, it's not good people that God justifies by patting them on the head and saying, you did good. God justifies people who are still wicked. That's good news because it means everybody here qualifies. And everybody you encounter qualifies because they're all in that boat. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's the wicked that God justifies. So while a person is still sinful, before a person ever does a good deed just because they want to for the glory of Jesus, and thankfully we can do that after we come to him, but before you've ever done that, before that's ever happened, it says God justifies the wicked who believe in him and who he is and what he has done. Now, that word justifies. Let's make sure we know what that means. You've got to know what that means if you're going to be an ambassador for Jesus and give the good news. You're talking to people who think that they can be right with God because of the stuff they do. They've got the typical religious mindset. And you're trying to show to them that the good news is different than religion. 
The gospel, the good news is that Jesus has done what you can't, and he's done it in full, and he will give that justification to you if you believe in him, who he is and what he has done. Now, what is that justification? To be justified means this, to be declared righteous. To be declared righteous. Doesn't mean to be made righteous. It means to be declared righteous. Notice verse 5, it's the wicked who are justified. So clearly they're not truly righteous. They're not in reality righteous. It calls them wicked. They're still sinful. But they're declared righteous by God. It's a courtroom term. Picturing God the judge. And we are on trial. And we are completely guilty. And we have no possibility of paying for our crime. And another steps in who's able to pay for our crime in full and give us absolutely right standing before the righteous bar of God's justice. And that one is Jesus Christ. So the good news is this. When you believe in who Jesus is and what he did, and you receive that by believing, you get the payment Jesus made on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and satisfy the wrath of God. And you get the absolutely righteous life of Jesus applied to you. And so God now sees you through Jesus. Thanks be to God. And your days of trying to earn God's favor are done. And the religious approach is over with. And you don't ask questions like, what good thing can I do? Oh, Lord, I know there's no good thing I can do. That's why Jesus had to come, and only Jesus is good. And Jesus has done this marvelously good thing for me. He lived the life that I should have lived, and he died the death that I deserved, and that's the good news. And now I have righteous standing before him. And so, dear friend, neighbor, coworker, family member, It's not religion that saves you. It's not the good stuff you do that saves you. It's Jesus who saves you, and only he can save you. And that makes a profound difference then in how you then live your life after you come to Christ. If you really understand that, it'll make a profound difference in the way you go about your Christian life. If you understand that God has done this marvelous transaction of taking the righteous life of Jesus and applying it to me and taking the payment on the cross of Jesus and applying it to me, having first taken the sin of Adam and my sin and placed it on Jesus, that he's done all of that in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you recognize that, it now changes profoundly the motivation you have for living for Jesus. Author Tim Keller puts it very well when he says, religion is really about performance. That's what most people think. Religion is about how I can perform before God. And he says this, religion says you obey in order to be accepted. But the gospel says you're accepted and therefore you obey. Do you guys see the profound difference there? Religion says, I obey, I do good things in order to be accepted by God. But the good news, the gospel is this, I'm accepted, 
And because I'm accepted, I obey. The motivation is profoundly different. The motivation for religion is fear, fear of loss. The motivation in the gospel is gratitude and joy for what we've been given. The motivation in religion is to get things from God. Remember the rich young ruler? What can I do to get eternal life? What do we have on TV today with all of the hucksters saying, look, if you do this and you, and you give this to God, you'll get stuff. You'll have cars and houses and all of that. All the guys in the Bible missed that piece. But these guys have unlocked the key to prosperity, getting stuff from God. It's about getting things. The gospel is about the blessedness of getting God. It'll make a difference. If, you, if you've got that security in your life that says, I know that I am right before God, not because I'm good, I'm wicked. <laughs> I'm right before God because Jesus has done the work that is the basis of my being declared right before God the Father. It'll make a difference then in things like when you're criticized. If you're somebody who's on the performance treadmill and your evaluation of yourself is dependent upon how well you do, when you're criticized for not doing so well, how will you react? Oh, yikes, man. Look out. (laughs) You become furious. But if you're somebody who secure, is secure in the fact that the performance has been done by Jesus, the work has been done by Jesus, then if somebody criticizes you, justly or unjustly, you still have your security and your identity, not in your performance, but in Him. So we have got to, one, understand the gospel. We've got to understand what justification is. We've got to understand what the good news is, and then we've got to give it to those that God brings in our circle of influence based upon where their understanding is. Is this somebody steeped in their self-righteousness? That's going to be many of the people you talk to. So you've got to let them know, listen, the good news is not what you think. It's not religion. It's this. And you tell them that. Now, you've got another group of people who are steeped in their sin. People who are steeped in the sin of self-righteousness and then people who are just steeped in their sinful living. And both of those are different types of sinners. Notice, they're both sinners. They're just different types of sinners. you got religious sinners and you got irreligious sinners. But they're both sinners. But Jesus addressed them differently. With the rich young ruler, he had a, a, a religious sinner. But next week, we'll look at John chapter 4 where Jesus dealt with a Samaritan woman who was a lifestyle sinner. And Jesus confronted that, but the same thing is the case for her as it is with the rich young ruler. You need someone outside of yourself, something outside of yourself, okay? So we'll look at that next week. Let's ask God to help us this week. As we go, grant us safety, and let's pray as well that God will grant you open doors a self-righteous sinner that you can give the good news to, okay? Let's bow together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to praise you in song, to worship you through giving, to worship you in prayer, to look into your word. Thank you, Lord, for this hour, 
and allowing us to be here, giving us the desire to be here and to learn of you. Thank you most of all for the good news of the gospel and the Lord who is the center of it, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his life and his death on our behalf. We thank you for the marvelous message that we can have a relationship with you apart from ourselves because the Lord Jesus has done it. Help us, Lord, first and foremost to understand that and embrace that fully. Help us to live out the implications of that in our daily lives, moment by moment, even in personal interactions when we're we're criticized. Help us to remember that our performance does not give us our identity. It does not give us our acceptance. Our acceptance is in Jesus, and that cannot change. Lord, so help it to continue to transform us. But then, Lord, we ask you to open up doors for us to talk to people who are steeped in a misunderstanding of themselves and a misunderstanding of you, that they could somehow do something or some things that would recommend them to you, merit standing in a relationship with you. Help us to bring the good news of the gospel to bear on that. It's a hopeless treadmill that they would be on. And help us, Lord, to with joy give them the blessed news that all that you're trying to do has been done by the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant us open doors this week, we ask you. Help us to be wise in looking for those doors. And we ask you to grant us safety as we serve you and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.